Well, good evening. And before I continue, let me make sure I say thank you to General Metcalf and to the museum staff for a marvelous day. I've been to the museum a number of times, uh, not since you put the new wing on, and I have to be very careful tonight, and I promise I will not make this my lovely day at the museum uh, as a speech. What we really need for that would be a nice 10-year-old, very precocious, or perhaps their mother to come and talk about what it was like to visit the Air Force Museum. But the staff uh, has just made a marvelous day for me. And I bring that up because as I went through the museum, and I see the museum's motto of we are the keeper of their stories, it worked exactly like that for me. I thought of my father. I thought of my father-in-law, who was an armor and loaded B-24s off the Palestri raid. I, I could see other things, and it was most emotional to some degree. And maybe, perhaps, as our culture, touching things and seeing things that have mattered to others or to ourselves plays a part. And it reminded me at the last, and again, I'm not going to give you my wonderful day at the museum talk, about my son. Uh, Gregory is, uh, and he likes to go by Greg. I have to always remind myself that. He's 17, going to graduate from high school, getting ready to go into uh, college. And we came here... He was a kindergartner, first time for him. And his mother, uh, who was also an Air Force uh, Reserve Officer, Nurse Corps, had been associated with the medical center out here for many, many years. Uh, she was doing a tour. We were here visiting. We got to go to the museum. And I knew I had to then go and see her. And we had gone out. We were seeing the planes out on the ramp. We'd gone to the World War II control tower. Uh, he had asked for the first time, what's a rotary phone? He had never seen one before. What is this, Daddy? And he was marvelous. But that's... At the end, and I'm finally saying we have to go home, what I notice is my son is scratching his leg. Now we're driving along, and he's scratching his leg. And as the father, of course, these things occur a little bit slower to me than perhaps the mother. But I knew I had to figure out what's going on before I got there and was questioned. So I said to him, and again, this is a notion of dealing with children at that age about the use of language. And I should have said, why are you scratching? Or what is causing you to scratch? Instead, I just said, what is itching? <laughs> now, in only the way a child who suddenly thinks the adult who is now he is entrusted to has lost his mind, my son looks up at me and goes, you know what itching is. <laughs> and that brings me to tonight. You know what the controversy of Billy Mitchell is. You know who he is. But I hope perhaps by the end of this presentation that you might think about it, maybe itch a little bit about these notions of Billy Mitchell, his controversy in the early air war. Now, young Billy Mitchell, a disappointment to his father. He leaves college, joins as a private in the Wisconsin volunteer, the first Wisconsin volunteer regiment to go fight in the Spanish-American War. His father, of course, a senator, a very prominent family in Wisconsin. Um, his grandfather been a essentially a, a robber baron, built a banking and railroad uh, success story. Uh, he makes sure that Billy becomes Lieutenant Billy Mitchell. And uh, we see Billy here early on. But what is important about this time, as the war comes about, is Mitchell is influenced by the, what would be the dominant intellectual movement of the day, progressivism. But not just any progressivism, like social progressivism or clean government progressivism, but organizational progressivism. That's which would lead to the AMA, the American Medical Association, taking control of medical schools and the practice and who gets to enter. 
the American Bar Association doing the same thing in law, the Society of Engineers that would produce a Herbert Hoover later. But what the dominant thinking here was proper organization in an increasingly complex life of America was key. That also meant you needed people with proper training and proper experience and a control to the profession. So out of this also comes notions of scientific management and the gospel of efficiency. That our public life should be able to be maneuvered and organized in a way that optimizes its ability to produce services or goods or happiness. And Mitchell is influenced by this. And when I come back to this organizational theme in his thinking, we'll see that again. But this is sort of the young Billy Mitchell influenced in college, off to his first war. America is now entering the 20th century at the end of this period. What is dominant here? The other influence early in his life, of course, as we see the Wright Flyer, is machines. America, as it moves towards World War I and the period of Mitchell's controversy, is becoming increasingly machine-based. Things that we take for granted today as they came on to electric irons. Other sort of devices, machine-based. Ultimately, by the time that he comes back from World War I, we find an increasingly machine-based society and the ultimate machine, not necessarily Ford's idea of an automobile for the masses, and of course the automobile becomes the most pervasive of machines perhaps, or the radio later, but the real machine that changed things was the air-conditioned movie theater. I mean, you go in and you have your environment changed, entertained, you're just taking away. It's a time machine for some people depending on the story. So Mitchell sees machine-based society, and that's fairly common at this time, and it's exciting. Flight. The collapsing initially of time and space through this medium. The other element, of course, is that America is becoming more urban-based. It will be in the 1920 census that indicates, in fact, more Americans are now living in what we would consider cities than in rural communities, that there's a passing here. So these two elements come together and will form a lot of what Mitchell thinks about in terms of air power, aviation, and what would make the most organizationally sense formation or foundation for defense after the war. Of course, the war itself. Here we see aviation. Uh, the Western Front, of course, is key at this time in terms of development. And a number of themes will come out to us. One is its rapid development of aviation. It had been well established in every major army before the war to have an aviation section of a number of squadrons primarily to do observation. There had been training. There had been purchasing and acquisition. There had been basic doctrine laid down in how observation aircraft would function in support of an army in the field. There had been field exercises. All of this was established. But no one had expected what you would see by the end of the war. In part, this was due to short war delusion. For example, the head of acquisition for French aviation in 1914, when the war finally comes to them in August, cancels all orders for new aircraft, all orders for new engines. Because he figures six months, the war is over, and we'll figure out what we really need later. Uh, he ends up losing that job, as I recall, as they had to bring someone in now to get the factory orders going again, because in fact the war does not end. And this is a war, if you looked at the armies that entered in 1914, and the armies that exit in 1918, that they don't look at all alike. It's very difficult to look back at World War II or Korea or Vietnam. We know there was changes, but when you look at who marched off and the style of warfare in 14, 
to what is at the end in 18, it is a radical change. Submarines, chemical weapons, aircraft themselves, strategic bombing, global war in a way that hadn't been seen before. The armies are radically different. For aviation, there's a tremendous leap forward in technology, which puts a premium on industrial mobilization. Can you provide the resources to keep aircraft in the field? It's one thing to find people silly enough to fly them. But the other thing is to try to put them in the field. And there's a tremendous race among the major powers to always gain a technological advantage in the air and to put enough aircraft in the air because a good airplane, and maybe the best airplane in small numbers, might not be enough to overcome equally almost as good airplanes in larger numbers. So keeping fielded forces there. And then, of course, the change from what would be shared airspace. If you can imagine a time where it was just allowed, observation aircraft would pass by, you might have read this, waving at the opposite pilot, a brotherhood of the air seemed to prevail. Until someone says, I don't think it's a good idea that they get to cross over and take pictures. And it goes from shared airspace to contested airspace. And that will fundamentally change the nature of the air war and the nature of the technology and the demands of air combat. It will be, you know, of course, Fokker that comes up with the idea that we can use an interrupter gear to essentially allow us to fire along the axis of flight to destroy another aircraft sets a huge transformation in the nature of air as a business in war. So this contested airspace. And then, of course, the event of uh, 10 March 1915 on the Somme is when Yu Trenchard, the head of the Royal Flying Corps, puts together an air plan in support of an offensive at New Chapelle. And here we find two themes, an integrated air plan to support a ground campaign, which ground commanders have expected ever since. And the second part was the first foundation of combat doctrine in the air, which was he simply called relentless offensive action. One will continue to fly and continue to fight and hopefully win. You will always take the attack of the enemy. So these are the big themes that are going on that America is watching from 1914 till its involvement in 1917. We then show up, of course, with this. Join the Army Air Service, be an American Eagle. When war finally comes, when Wilson leads us into the Great War in 1917, it is thought, without a doubt, that the nation that gave the world flight would make its mark in this global war, this world war, in the air. The newspapers are very interesting. We're going to fill the skies over Germany with American aircraft and American boys. That's where we'll fight, not in the trenches, but in the air. And it fit, of course, as you can imagine, a number of themes about a machine-based world and basic fundamental thinking about the American experience at that point. Rugged individualism. Self-dependency. When you think of a machine war in World War I, and you think of what was the major weapon systems that caused most of the casualties, the large guns and other things that come about, the term crew-served weapons comes to mind. Men serve the guns and they do the damage. If you read the trench poets and their relationship to these sort of systems, these weapons, the idea of serving the guns to do this damage. But we know almost intuitively at this time, when you looked at the air and you looked at the machine, that this partnership of man and machine meant man was still the senior partner. Great aircraft 
great pilot. It's Eddie Rickenbacker and his plane. And of course, the other element that seemed to fit in with Americans who expected this to be where our main thrust comes from the West. I mean, how many ideas? It's not just the Europeans, Knights of the Air, fine, but Top Gun, gunfighting, Frank Luke, the Arizona balloon buster. I mean, his whole death is written like a, essentially a Western drama, uh, shot down in no man's land between the lines, too close to the Germans. The Germans are coming. He refuses to surrender, pulls out his sidearms, and continues to fight until he's killed. I mean, the fact that it just fits a lot of dominant themes. Now, of course, Congress played a part. The single largest appropriation that Congress had ever passed up to that point becomes $640 million. I mean, drop in a bucket today, but big money then, for aviation. Now, keep in mind, I'm putting out this entire drumbeat of information about American air effort, and it better show up. And this will lead a little bit to later in the discussion of what is some post-war disillusionment with where is the American air effort, where are the American aircraft, what has happened here. Now then we enter, of course, Billy Mitchell comes to this play. In part, he has witnessed this notion of a change in the air war when he gets there by 17. He spends a lot of time talking to allies to give a plug for the current chief of staff of the Air Force's push for language and culture. Mitchell beats out the competition to be the leading airman in Europe because he speaks French. And Benny Folloy and a few others don't. So if your major air partner is going to probably be the French at this time, even more so than the Royal Flying Corps, where even English becomes an issue, you ought to speak French, and he does. It gives him a huge advantage in dealing with an ally. He witnesses, of course, the movement to integrated air combat. And particularly, he is impressed by the need to gain and maintain air superiority. Throughout the history and discussion of this part of the war, one could sense that as 1916, the Battle of Verdun, or the Battle of the Somme, shifts to the later years, who controls the air gains a marked advantage in the ground combat. The Battle of Verdun in particular is marked almost completely by who could maintain local air superiority because their guns became more effective in the large fights through observation than the other side. By the end of the war, offensive didn't go forward if the aircraft couldn't fly. It became a titanic struggle in the air as well as on the ground. The other element to this notion of air superiority became essentially a combined arms approach to the air. All this is growing up in a very quick time. Observation aircraft need to be protected. The notion of providing a safe avenue to do their things. The ability to deny the enemy airspace. So the things we talk about today, every day, at either the advanced school, the war college, or offensive counter-air, defensive counter-air, battlefield air addiction, the notion of strategic attack comes out of this war. The first blitz of London will come out of this war. The only thing they cannot manage is air-to-air -air refueling. They do even try resupply by air and long-distance airlift. All those things are laid forward. Mitchell, of course, meeting with group commanders in France in 1918, has three big challenges. And this will mark him into the post-war period. The first is, where do I find airmen and air leaders for this great American air effort? Who's going to train them? Where do we train them? How do we select them? There's wonderful stories, uh, most of them false, that deal with issues of training things. And we used to try this at the Air Force camera. I talked there. We thought, maybe this is true. One was you use a flight surgeon. 
you have a young aviation potential cadet, and you walk behind him, have him read, slap him in the back of the head with a mallet, knock him to the ground, have him stand up and see how long it takes him to read the rest of the sentence. Um, there was another one that supposedly they use. Again, these I think are all quite uh, fanciful in the mind of others, but people thought about it. It's called the, the nerves of steel test. Uh, my wife likes this one for some reason. She likes to sew and knit. As you take a very sharp needle, sewing, put the sharp end here, blunt end here, you hold it. Again, the vice surgeon walks behind the candidate, re produces a revolver. Now, this is interesting in a medical facility. Uh, fires it off, and if you didn't draw blood, or not too much blood, nerves of steel probably should make a good aviator. Um, and the truth is, if you've seen a movie like The Right Stuff, no one really knew what was needed to make an aviator with the exception of death perception. That really good eyesight and death perception. A big debate about hearing. I want you to have great hearing because you can sense the differences in your engine at this time. Open cockpit, lots of flying, you went deaf sooner or later. So your great hearing didn't last very long. But these were the issues. And Mitchell's saying, well, I've got to come up to train people. And I need to select these people. Who am I I mean, who has the experience to lead men in air combat? Leading men might be easy, but in this nature, how do you do that? And this was all new as we tried to grow into what would be a true air service in support of the American Expeditionary Force under Pershing. And it will. There will be a number of fighter groups, bomber groups, and we owe a great debt, of course, as we'll discuss later, to our allies. The other element of this is technology. Where do I get airplanes from? How are we going to ship them from the States? Well, that gets into the entire transportation process with everything else coming from America, as well as the building of it. And in fact, he makes a constant search for equipment, for training, to bring together squadrons with enough time to go into action integrated. So keep in mind, where do I find airmen? Where do I find the airframes to do this? He then begins to search for what would be the higher order thinking of what's the best air fighting doctrine I can come up with. And here he spends time with the French and the Brits and the Italians examining what they know of the war, what they have tried. Is it big groups? Is it small groups? Is it altitude versus this? What becomes the central war fighting doctrine at what we like to call the tactical and techniques level at least? How might that work? But ultimately what Mitchell has figured out by this point, and think back to our organizational progressivism, is the search for those three things will not go well without the proper organization and expertise to find answers and ask the right questions. The lack of preparedness to mount a major air effort in 1917 into 1918 is clearly a, also a failure of organization. The air service is too tiny. Uh, it was part of the Signal Corps. It is not ready to do this. So underneath all of this for Mitchell would be that. Authors would argue during this war, uh, a fellow by the name of John Morrow, the great war in the air, that it was a call primarily for industrial mobilization and technology. I.B. Holly, someone I, I've respected for a very long time as a historian, he says it's all about ideas. Yes, technology, weapons and ideas, this book about this period, but the doctrine, the thinking behind it. Some have argued, like me, it's a lot about the people you can find. But ultimately, Mitchell would say, that's all well and good, but without a proper organization, it is meaningless. It will only be well-intentioned people working very inefficiently. And that's where we find this progressive notion, notion of his comes to play. 
Mitchell's experiences set him apart from Trenchard, who leads the Royal Flying Corps, or the Italian air power theorist, later Duhay. I mean, Duhay, who spends most of his time never even seen an airplane, never having actually been in an aircraft, as far as anyone can tell, uh, court-martialed and in prison in Italy on a front that's not very active and thinking about what air war would look like is one thing. Trenchard, who moves rapidly from an air commander at the front to managing a large flying organization, eventually the Royal Air Force, sits far back as an organizer of victory in air power. But Mitchell is an air combat commander. To use contemporary language, he is the combined joint forces air combat commander, the, a, the JFAC, we like to call them, or the CFAC. He leads in two major campaigns, the Battle of San Miguel and then later Mursargan, a tremendous air effort, again in support primarily of a ground offensive, primarily marked by air superiority missions, close air support, and shallow interdiction, a large effort versus San Miguel, single largest concentration of air power on the Western Front, a combined one. The French loan them aircraft and crews. The Italians will provide night bombers. Uh, the RAF helps, but they don't really want to be under his command. It's very interesting about we won't serve under an American at this point. But also the largest effort that he begins to put out. But his units will play an interesting part, particularly the bomber units. There's an ordeal of the bomber squadrons at this time that pull together in the first group to go over the front and then the second group that marks, again, the problem of preparedness. If you can imagine showing up at a field, aircraft being delivered, and you and I are sorting out among ourselves who by date of rank here is in charge. Never having flown together, trying to do essentially formation flying and navigation to a target. The American bomber groups in particular that go over the front will suffer tremendous casualties approaching 50 and 60%. If there is a history and tradition of pressing on against great R's in the air that we will see over Schweinfurt and Regensburg later, or over Hanoi, it begins in this war. The ability to continue to fly forward over a mission against great odds. And the bomber groups suffered tremendously, and they will never be Mitchell's friend. In their unit histories, quite often they blame him. That he his notion of maximum effort or relentless offensive that he kind of picks up sacrificed them because they were really not ready to do the missions he asked. They performed the missions, but the losses were tremendous. The fighter story is very different, where he meets Rickenbacker, who becomes a lifelong supporter, and others. Of course, I would point out, in fact, Rickenbacker and those people who fight in San Miguel and the Mercer gone are the second wave of American fighter pilots. The first group having generally been killed off in fighting the German offensive of 1918, Michael offenses, uh, or the Kaiserschlacht at that time. So here, again, and you can go throughout the museum and see the names of who pulled it together, Raoul Luftferry and others, who would lead essentially what becomes a very happy story of the air superiority battle we can do, as opposed to the bomber one, will play a part. So this part, though, Mitchell has seen war in terms of what we almost would identify exactly today, coming up with an air strategy, a plan of attack, tasking units to do certain missions, assessing the mission, making adjustments, and keeping them flying, fighting, and winning. I mean, you see it right when you come in the door. McConnell's statement, your job is to fly, fight, and win, and don't you dare forget it. And that's what Mitchell is about. And it's uniquely different in his early writings 
the writings that would matter to me, and I think to when I talk to my students, is not the Mitchell of 1924 to 1925. It's the Mitchell from 23 forward. 23 back towards right after the war and he writes. Here we have a cogent military professional concerned about operations, and I'll get a chance to talk about that. Now, I'm going to talk about naval aviation a little bit because this is another huge development during the war. Primarily, its success is not so much in scouting for the fleet as in suppressing what is the U-boat threat of that time, the convoy protection, U-boat hunting, anti-submarine warfare. This is what's going on. The technology of the day is, of course, amazing to try to bring this about. Unlike, really, land air power, it's a fit behind, a bit more primitive. And the launching and retrieving of aircraft at sea is a huge, huge problem. Now, dirigibles, airships, make a lot more sense. Now, Mitchell observes some of this. He knows the value that in terms of especially the convoy protection, anti-submarine warfare. But as the war comes to an end, and what will now we will begin to set up what becomes the dominant fight of a sea power-based operational templates that you might want to invest in for defense, or air power, meaning land-based air power, Mitchell has a blind spot. He generally sees naval aviation as second rate to land aviation in a number of ways. You can't produce enough mass, uh, in a bunch of issues with that he looks at. He's, and the problem is he sees, now we've looked at this picture for years at the War College and Air University, and I have not yet decided if it's an early catapult off the deck, the flush deck carrier, which is the great breakthrough for naval aviation, that they're pushing the plane going fly, or it's a re there is the, um, the resting hook crew, that the plane has landed and they're trying to grab it before it goes off the end. So we're not quite sure, but when Mitchell sees this, he's very skeptical in a way that he's not skeptical of the challenges facing land air power. I will keep in mind that he did see weird experiments. The French, in particular, had a thing that they wanted to do off the back of ships called tangential air power. Now, if I was back in Maxwell, I usually have this um, rubber plane that little kids play with, and I have it on a string, but I'll use this. And the notion was they put like a derrick, and anybody who's been to a county fair might remember these rides. You kind of start down here, and then it spins around, and eventually it gets faster and faster, and away you go. And the idea was that the French Navy would have a few of these ships with derricks. You'd hoist a, hoist a plane up, and it's being to spin it around like a toy, and then you go fly. Well, they tried it a couple of times, and the plane, you know, you fly and went like that. Now, there's another unique story about people and aviators. Be it shooting someone off a gun deck, off the turret of a, of a gun on a carrier, or from a, an aircraft carrier, or as you can see, somebody dropping, you know, the, setting the, the world free fall record from 20, I mean, it's just, you can always go to the club on a Friday night at the right time and induce an aviator to try anything on Monday morning. Now they may, you know, on Monday they may go, I said I do what? Oh yeah, yeah, get on the plane, right in the seat here, we got this all squared away. But this is a, almost a, a tremendous time of innovation and Mitchell will always look askant, skeptically at naval aviation. Uh, and there are still issues today that follow us about the ability to create enough mass from these things versus their expense. And that's what he draws on a lot. Now, the post-war period for Americans, the bottom line is this. Too much to do and too little time before the war ends. Many American aviators working for Mitchell and back in Washington and in supporting the war in Europe were waiting for 1919, Plan 1919. 
More crews were ready, more squadrons were ready. The aircraft was, was being fine-tuned. We were bringing new things online, and the Germans gave up. And that was a, just a shame. And the new technology, that got, well, if, if you were there trying to make a you know, proof of test, it's like, what do you mean they gave up? Bring them back on the war for at least another six months. Because we've got some stuff to show you. And there was always a sense that we never had a chance to demonstrate the full range and power of air power. And the Brits were trying to move there with their independent air force. Now, this buried torpedo, you have one here in the museum. Um, it's the Kettering Bug, if I'm not mistaken. It's a small little one. It's earlier than this. The gyroscope makes this possible. This was being designed near the war's end. It's extended in 1920. Mitchell claims in 1928 that they were out at Mitchell Field, Long Island. That's with one L. It was named for John L. Mitchell, mayor of New York, not for Billy. It kind of, usually that's for, messed up by people, not that it's really important. It's just a small airport in Long Island. But he claims they fired six of these at a target south of Trenton, New Jersey. And they all hit. Now, I've been wondering. I went to graduate school at Rutgers. That's in New Jersey. I kind of know what the south part. And I'm thinking, are they shooting at Ocean Grove Naval Air Station? I mean, is it true that the, it, between, it's the Navy is the real enemy? But we're not sure what happened. But the post-war period says this. There was the American Arab effort that was promised by the Wilson administration does not turn up. The DH-4, the only aircraft we get over there, is basically an observation light bomber that's already obsolete. It serves very well in the war. But nonetheless, in terms of cutting-edge technology in a war that changed very rapidly, by the time it was fielded, even with the great Liberty engine that you can find here, it's no longer the front leading edge when it was being from the design they were working from. Um, all kinds of post-war investigations into what seemed to be the American air effort that never was. And hence these plans for 1919 that don't come to fruition play a huge part in a post-war wonderment about this that is only retrieved in part by people like Billy Mitchell, Eddie Rickenback, and others. Because the American airman, the individual, retrieves in the mind of the public the failure of the American air effort by their valor and success. Mitchell, of course, is, is noted as America's leading aviation expert. Rickenbacker, clearly the ace of aces, is probably second as the most popular American hero of the war only to Alvin York. And of course, that hits so many other dominant things of you know, the militia in American experience, standing up to uh, you know, Prussian aggression and you know, this sort of idea of militarism and Alvin York's background clearly makes him probably the leading American hero, the real sort of man's hero, the common man's hero, and Rickenbacker, of course, flowing into that. And he's a great story in himself, and you can enjoy that here, who he was a driver for, how he eventually gets into the air business, how he becomes the leading ace, which quite often was seen as a curse. It's kind of like sports, being named number one in the poll, because he's not always a leading ace, and there's others. And by and large, whenever you became the leading American ace, you got shot down and was injured or killed. Uh, of course, Rickenbacker survives the war. But there is a cultural hero here that fits a machine-age America. Again, the dominant partner is the man. In aviation, of course, the promise of the golden age of this time is tremendous, and Mitchell will understand that and occasionally trade on it. Trade on it very heavily as he becomes more and more frustrated in thinking that he had this leverage with the American public. 
the allure after the war, and this is across the board in aviation thinking, becomes strategic attack, the bomber. Would it be an alternative to the trench? Should there be a next great war? And many people are just waiting for round two. When will be the next war? The question that comes into play quite often on strategic attack is how best to employ it. And here we find vast differences in the early writings of Billy Mitchell from those of perhaps Duhay. As he goes on, you can't find much difference between Duhay and Mitchell, but in his early writings, it is not so much the bomber will always get through, it's not so much this is how we will just destroy things, it's not simple mathematics equations done by someone who had been an artillery officer, which was Duhay's main background. Mitchell looks again at America, and he thinks also about Europe and the rise of urban environments and the complexity of urban life. And he begins the hunt for the right target set that essentially can provide pressure on industrial nations, peer nations, in war through the air. And he, and he locates a number of these target sets that make sense to him. Electricity. Cities are becoming increasingly dependent on electrical power. That and potable water. And many of his ideas are almost, we would argue today, non-lethal. I mean, what if I drop, just die, into the reservoirs that feed cities and the water looks green now? And his thought was what you could do is create panic in the cities and not destroy it so much as make it almost seem unlivable that people would be forced into the countryside or out, create a crisis to the government, and that would somehow affect the will to continue fighting. It's a doctrine of disruption is what he's sort of looking at. And that plays an interesting part in how he also sees, and many people uh, of his class coming out of essentially a very wealthy patrician class in America, is that the cities are dangerous and interesting, both interesting, fascinating, but also sort of dangerous, scary places for Americans. The immigration issue, lots of immigrants. I mean, my last name is Grimelli. It's these people from, you know, essentially the southern part of Europe who are coming in. And there's a feeling that also these cities are fragile, not so much because of interdependence, but who lives there mainly? Very excitable Italians who talk with their hands. So the bombers come over, they're going to be like, oh my God, you know, mamma mia, and they rush off. And, uh, and so there was an issue. And this will play out as court-martial, where very serious military professionals, aviators, and ground officers will debate the efficacy of bombing against a population. And generally it says, well, the right kind of people just won't crack. But other people will. And if you're concerned about who lives in your cities, which is also a part of the 1920s and then even into the 30s, and these notions of thy brother's keeper that comes out about where organization becomes social progressive organization, um, you begin to think, ah, see, cities, interesting place. Hubs of industry, government power, and fragile. And that plays a part in his initial thinking about perhaps the greater role and mission of air power beyond supporting the land campaign autonomy and independent action. Now, this is Mitchell with his, his very, very hard-pressed boss, Major General Mason Patrick, Pershing's West Point classmate, placed in charge of aviation during the war, essentially to stop an intermural fight between Benny Falloy and Billy Mitchell and, and a few others over who should be in charge. Uh, Mitchell, of course, gets the best job. He's the one who is commander of the zone of the advance. Now, that is something uniquely American. The Western Front from 1916, 1915, 1918, doesn't have a lot of advance. But we don't term it the front like everybody else does. We call it the zone of advance. 
And then there's the zone of the rear where Benny Falloy is making sure boxes are going forward and the stuff like that. But Mason Patrick plays a very interesting part in Mitchell's life, in his professional life. I think he tries to protect him very often. He has a talented subordinate who's also at times very, very difficult to work with or makes your life difficult. Billy, did you really go out and say this to the press, that the Navy is now obsolete? Well, yeah, boss, but you know, it's not really what I meant. Uh, I, I meant it, but I didn't mean it that way, and I didn't think they'd take me literally. But Patrick plays a big part, and their discussions also are about what is the future of air power? What should the operational template be worth asking the American people through their government to invest in? This is a topic that is important today for all the services. We ask the American people to provide the funds to invest in operational templates that we think make sense. And this is what most of the thinking is about. Is it just strategic attack? Initially, for Mitchell and the Air Service, no. What sets Mitchell apart from Duhay and even Trenchard in England is he is a full-spectrum air power thinker. Close air support, interdiction. Yes, strategic bombing. Yes, fighters and air superiority. There's no such thing in his mind as the battle plane. Early on, he is looking at what can air power do across a large range of security issues and operational problems. And he pushes the young aviators and the experienced veterans from that war to think along these lines. And it sets up some very interesting reading between people up here in research and development at this time and people at Aberdeen Proving Ground, Maryland, in doing research and development on weapons, airframes and weapons. What mission, what role of mission? Is it func functional specialization you're going to emphasize? All this is coming very heavy at the end of the war and of course Mitchell's belief in a proper organization will make this smoother. And we all understand that's code for independent air force. Mitchell spends a lot of time going around the different units and talking on these particular topics. We'll take, for example, his notion of full-spectrum air power. The United States uh, Air Service is one of the last of the modern air services to keep an, an, air, an attack, ground attack wing. This is part of his full-spectrum thinking. We're one of the last to give it up, and budget pressures kind of make that happen. He uh, talks about, again, what do we do? What is the, what is the nature of air war going to be and what are the large security concerns? Which, of course, at this time, he is focusing on the Pacific. This fits a dominant trend of what is seen as the rising problem in the Pacific. It fits also why, if you ever wondered, and you looked particularly who publishes Billy Mitchell and his articles, it's the Hearst Press. And the Hearst Press, being based primarily in California and the West, is particularly concerned about Japanese penetration of the Western Hemisphere, immigration, and their concerns in rising power. A hard sell militarily in the early 20s, but one that has a strategic bent. The defense of the Philippines, the defense of the Panama Canal, uh, interest in the Pacific. Mitchell is constantly pushing and thinking about there's a threat here. He saw it when he was a young officer in the Philippines. Like many Army officers, uh, there was a Japanese hiding behind every tree during the insurrection and later. So he is projecting what are long notions. How does air power project from the continental United States? How do we defend our interests? And this plays a large part. He also talks about what we would argue is tactics. Early on, there is no thought the bomber will simply get through on its, on its own. 
He believed very clearly, based on what happened to his bomber groups in World War I, that the bomber needed to be defended. It needed safe ingress, freedom of the air to operate and maneuver. He talks a great deal in his early writings on that issue alone. And in fact, he says, you have to bring the enemy air force to bear. You must gain air superiority to open up the freedom of action that your bombers can do in a way that makes it reasonably cost effective when it comes to losses. What is an acceptable loss rate? In our discussions of, and readings about World War II, the combined bomber offensive, what normally happens to the Eighth Air Force or the, or the, the bomber command, what, is, what can you do? How long can pilots and aircrew keep flying as the loss rate mounts? What is an acceptable loss rate? And Mitchell believes clearly air superiority is the key to this, even if it means, and he writes in his notes, do not show this to the bomber crews if we have to use the bombers as bait. Now, if you're familiar with Operation Point Blank in World War II, when Arnold says simply to the American aviators in Europe, destroy the Luftwaffe in the air, on the ground, or in the factories, you send the bombers into Germany, either the Luftwaffe will come up and fight, and you can find them, or you can destroy them if they stay down. So is it bait, or is it a way to draw the enemy to you to be destroyed, or not, or you gain anyway, indirectly? Well, if my effect is to go through and bomb, and you don't oppose me, that plays a part. So his notion of if you sometimes have to use the bombers as bait to draw them to you to be destroyed, just don't let the bomber guys know. But his hangar flying is, is basically all about that. He spends a great deal of time working on operational and technical problems that he wants solved by what is a very, you know, it's a golden age of flight because everything seemed possible and nothing was known. And that plays a part in the possibilities. We are constrained, essentially, today, by our history of knowing that what works, what doesn't, and, and perhaps we constrain ourselves. Uh, I can't answer that question, but we do know that understanding, yes, we actually can do it, a physical now to determine if somebody should be in, uh, go to UPT, undergraduate pilot training, or not. The other elements of this, of course, will set us up in the early 20s under eventually the administration of Calvin Coolidge, a Republican administration, I would add. I usually tell my, my students, I said, be careful if the Republicans get in power because they can cut the defense budget easier than Democrats. You may not like their other policies, but they're always considered weak on defense. Well, after the, the First World War, when the Republicans are swept into power and eventually Coolidge takes over, they're very serious about getting rid of something that didn't exist before the war, the budget deficit. And this is the period known as normalcy. And normalcy would affect what is seen as the major discretionary program at the time, was the military. And many of the people that come out of this period had fought on a large world stage. So very talented military professionals are seeing their world shrink in terms of opportunity, in terms of the ability to see things done, and it sets up the climactic battle of the 1920s and the early air power controversy between sea power as a format for defense or air power. And Mitchell is the air power advocate. This comes to bear eventually in 1921, and what was known as the Naval Ordnance Test of 1921, the Ostfriesland sinking. Here's Langley at that time. Mitchell puts together the 1st Provisional Air Brigade. They're on parade. It looks very nice. You know, big planes in front, little planes to the rear. Uh, dress right dress. Off we go. You know, it's uh, a fun time. And they're going to demonstrate the ability to sink a battleship. Of course, the Navy objects. They want to go and see what the threat of air attack is the battleships. And of course, the Secretary of the Navy at the time, Danielson says, can't be done. I'll stand on that battleship, you know, and of course, 
and, and you go ahead and bomb it all you want, but I'll stand on the battleship and, and nothing will happen to it. And I'm sure that his aides and staff said, you know, really, boss, this is not a good idea. Why don't we just watch from the boat and, and, and don't go stand on the ship, which was a good idea in the end. The, uh, Mitchell brings together a team. It is high, high stakes. He has placed every bit of his sort of fame, he's a rock star of the aviation world at this time, his post-war essentially reputation on the line in essentially calling out that we're going to do this. I once made the mistake, and let me just share this with you now, I said in this regard what will happen is Mitchell will become the father of naval aviation. I said this to a group of uh, Air Command Staff College students, we have naval officers in the group, some of them were aviators. One had been the aide who was then the uh, deputy chief of naval operations for aviation who shot an email to his boss. I can't believe this guy said that. He talked to someone on the air staff, a call to essentially the AU commander, the three-star general, General LaMontagne at the time, and he said, Grimelli, did you really say this? I said, yes, I said it. Yes, I know it's Admiral Moffat. But I was trying to make a point that was meant to be funny. Well, it wasn't very funny as these emails are going back and forth. So let me say this to you, that Mitchell is not the father of naval aviation, but he is. There she is. You can see even more wonderful evidence right here. They actually have film. I've only got pictures. And I only use this one tonight. And this is the Ost Friedland. Survived the Battle of Jutland. Watertight compartments. Was seen as really the first-rate naval technology of its day. And probably couldn't be sunk by an aircraft, a little teeny, you know, fluttering around plane with a couple of heavy weapons underneath, wasn't going to do it. Mitchell puts a, a unique team together. Not only is his airman there, he borrows the ideas and the research being done by the Italians. He has on his staff a couple of Italian air attaches, and they're very interested, regardless of what Duhay says about navies are irrelevant, they got a peninsula, and they got a lot of water around it, and they want to know about controlling the sea lines of communication to Italy. And they spent a lot of time thinking about how you destroy ships. And one thought was, it's kind of like a tank today, heavily armored on the top and the sides, a little bit less armored on the bottom. And the thought wasn't that you had to hit the ship, but you could do something called a water hammer. Drop big enough bombs next to the ship, close enough so that the water hammer would crush into the hull. You hit it below the water line. That might help it sink. Hey, hit, the, hit the thing is nice too, but we're not quite sure how much damage that can do. And he talks in his writing about the helpfulness of these couple of Italian uh, aviators in their own tests and bringing these ideas to bear. And then, of course, they, there's a number of other ships that are sunk. There's a submarine that goes down. Uh, the Frankfurt light cruiser goes down. And the big day, though, is here. Can you imagine the press? Can you imagine what the club was like the night before? Now, no, no, not drinking now, boys. You know, it's prohibition. You know, it's a, uh, let's get ready to fly tomorrow. And yes, he cheats. Yes, he cheats. He knows he's cheating. He doesn't follow the operational orders of the day. The ship has taken enough hits. It's listing, and then he makes a maximum effort. He sends his Martin V2s. There's one right here. He sends his 2,000-pound bombs, which, interestingly enough, we don't have going into World War II. And they send that thing to the bottom. And the Navy cries foul, loud and long. And there's a board, and there's, a, you know, and there's discussions, and there's discussions. And Mitchell, quite frankly, believes he's won the day. Proof of tests. Why are we going to talk about this? Give me the money. That's really, you know, in a way, give me the money. Now, I would tell you that it appears that the roles in mission about what becomes coastal defense and air power or sea power looks simply like a budget grab. 
the evidence of the staffs looking at these problems and looking at the defense issues see it as a very serious issue of coastal defense at this time and power projection to the Pacific, that air power would be dominant, that in fact they're incredibly serious about what's going on here and proving that in fact the money should be spent to improve air power over the sea as opposed to spending more money to provide ships on the backs of the Navy. The end of this, of course, leads to Mitchell to come up with his next great thinking called expeditionary air power. This is right after the, uh, the Ostfriedland sinking, and we deploy the 1st Provisional Air Brigade to West Virginia near Wheeling because of the Mingo County War. And this has to do with miners essentially fighting a revolt because they only get contracts signed like every 20 years or 10 years. And there was a lot of power, and they thought, and it's one of those things that we're happy never happened, that we actually did not employ in support of local authorities our own air power at this time. What it did show was we could move a lot of aircraft very rapidly and shift and place it there for her to do things. And Mitchell begins to write at this time, and his famous little thing called Notes on Multi-Engine Bombardment was all about moving stuff back and forth. And this comes out, and he gets to writing about what is key to the future of American defense in power projection is the ability for the air power and air aviators to do expeditionary operations. He talks about vertical envelopment. He wants his own Marines, mainly paratroopers, that he could then go in, seize fields, provide a lodgment, bring in air power, and fly out from. He also, if you've, I've not seen the movie, but I heard it's quite good, called Transformers. He even has ideas that there could be tanks that could be designed, that they could fly to the place, land on the ground, and convert themselves into a tank. I mean, it'd be a hell of a trick, and I'm sure Boeing could come up with one, where Lockheed would compete, and uh, we might have something there. But he starts looking at this power projection issue of island hopping and seizing advanced operating bases for air power, which becomes really an operational scheme in the Pacific in the next war. In the final analysis of this controversy period, Mitchell is all about organizational correctness, a proper organization and independent air force. He has a very overarching aim. It involves not only just what we would think of an air force, but he wants naval air power, which is on the British model initially, that naval aviation became part of the Royal Flying Corps or the Royal, Royal Air Force. And he wants commercial aviation in his one large department of the air. In this lies the seeds of his own problem. There are too many communities of airmen who are not willing to be part of one large overarching organization. Civilian and commercial aviators are not particularly fond of this idea. Naval aviators want to go to sea on the back of the fleet. He does have his strongest support among essentially industrial-based people thinking, ah, here's the place we can keep these industrial lines going, and airmen. But by and large, it's too overarching a view. But it comes back to the notion of organizational innovation, the right expertise, the right training, the right questions to be asked, the right answers to be sought inefficiency. And here in a place that we see technological innovation very clearly as we walk from the early flight all the way through to the Cold War, if you look carefully, as you examine the aircraft and their markings, you see the other thing that the United States Air Force has a legacy of doing, which is organizational innovation. I see the remnants here of the Cold War Air Force that no longer exists. Strategic Air Command, Tactical Air Command. These sort of things have changed. Probably more than the other services, the Air Force in its history has moved forward to provide also organizational innovation. Can you have one with it? The other is Mitchell's question to you. 
is this question to us today in this business. I asked a student, as a matter of fact, in, in his oral exams, or our School of Advanced Air and Space Power, they do another year after ACSC, they write a master's thesis, they have oral exams, and I said, what is more important in your observation, technical innovation in the aviation business and air and space power, or organizational innovation? And he was all over technical innovation. And then he looked blank about organization. I said, I hadn't even thought about that. So we thought, all right, let's, and there you have a conversation. It's not always about testing. Sometimes it's the last conversation. But quite often, the movements of a Cold War Air Force, or a World War II Air Force, or a post-Cold War Air Force, or an Air Force structured for the long war, is something Mitchell would want to talk to us about. What is the proper organization that brings about efficiency, that brings about the right people in the right place? Second wife. There's a little bit of a wingman story here. It's not always happy about Mitchell in this period. He paid for this himself. It was not done with government TDY funds. His wife came on his own dime. Just want to make that known. We don't want any congressional investigations at this point. Uh, a lot of the evidence is gone. We probably destroyed the tapes. The, um, but the notion here, while he has become, in fact, very, very frustrated that his success, I argue, in 1921 with the sinking of those Freeland does not produce the changes, the money, and the Air Force he wants, his frustration gets channeled in almost destructive ways. Advocacy that becomes close to zealot advocacy. Uh, a discourse that becomes increasingly strained. And then his personal life, uh, as he, when he, gets his, he has a divorce, it's not particularly an amicable divorce. Uh, he marries, essentially, uh, his second wife here, Betty, who is a, an, a Detroit uh, automobile heiress. Um, there's a lot of things in his personal life as we come to what will be the climax we all think about, the court-martial, that essentially has now in a life that's also personally spinning out of control. And that's the nicest way to put it. Uh, one can only imagine trying to achieve one end professionally and then seeing your personal life not going as well as it should be. And of course, he'll be shuttled off to San Antonio and away from DC, primarily by the Army saying, we're just tired of hearing you. And that will then lead eventually to the court-martial when initially he says, in the wake of the disaster, the loss of the naval dirigible Shenandoah, the death of Commander Lonsdale, the loss of the Commander Rogers and his crew doing the open water flight, the first attempt to go from San Diego all the way to Hawaii. And the press comes to Mitchell and says, what do you have to say about these twin disasters? And he makes this incredible typed written. I mean, it's all set up, many pages. But the most striking thing to remember is, he says, it's criminal negligence, incompetency, and almost a treasonable administration of the national defense by the Navy and War Department. Now, Calvin Coolidge is president. He is not about to accept this sort of outburst by a national figure in uniform. It probably produces, up until the MacArthur-Truman controversy, the largest challenge of civil-military relations in this country. It will culminate, of course, in what is almost a three-month and a little bit court-martial event. There are three trials, actually, in one. The Army is flabbergasted when they bring him to trial they ask him, did you make these statements? Yes, I did. Do you deny making these statements? And they go through this like four times. It's in the record. And they go down, we submit that this officer has committed insubordination and conduct prejudicial and discipline. We're done. Case closed. Can we now have a judgment? And the court-martial board says, well, we want to hear what Mitchell has to say about why he said these things. Now, they immediately go up and say, but wait a second. Truth is not an issue here. 
Truth and insubordination doesn't matter. It's what I explained to cadets at the Air Force Academy. I said, look, I'm out at Rutgers University, and I want to hold up a sign that says the president of the university is a bad person, and I use bad language. I don't go to jail over that. Now, if I ask you as a cadet to go walk around essentially Harmon Hall with a sign that says the superintendent of the United States Air Force Committee is these things, we court-martial you. He could be all those things, but truth is not a defense. So the Army is just caught flat-footed when Mitchell's allowed to mount a defense at this trial. It's really not the kangaroo court that some people would have you believe. This is what gets different. On the board are four of his closest friends. On the court, two of them are godfathers to his children. Frank McCoy is a key one, General McCoy at this time. They push quite often. Let Mitchell have his say. Maybe, in fact, there's something to this. And he lays out his defense. And the Army calls in what becomes a new prosecutor, and the two more trials have to take place. One is the Army trial, a rebuttal trial, and then they will also put on a Navy rebuttal trial to essentially attack not the truthfulness of his statements so much as the evidence he tried to lay out that says we were killing aviators every day. Because the longer discussion, which you can sense both frustration all the way back through the war, has to do with betrayal of airmen, unpreparedness for war, and a continuation of what he saw as policies. Now, the thing is, the Army comes across, and quite frankly, their, their rebuttal trial is beans, bullets, and budgets. We don't got a lot of money. Aviation is actually sucking up more money than any of the other branches of the Army. We're not trying to starve them or be mean. We just don't have a lot of money to spend around. And they already get $2 for every dollar spent on the infantry or the artillery and anything else we've got. So that's our problem. We're not trying to do anything wrong to them. We're certainly not stifling them. The main leading prosecution witness in the defense trial, though, has to do with the fact that in this very long statement, Mitchell says, we are killing more and more aviators every day. And it happens to be a guy by the name of Major General Ireland. He's the Surgeon General of the Army. If you've ever been to Fort Knox, the hospital there is named for him, not because he testified. He produces what is now scientific aircraft accident investigation procedures. We would recognize them today, done by airmen, that shows, A, per flying hour, as a matter of fact, over the last five years, fatalities and accidents have decreased tremendously. By and large, they're attributed not to poor equipment, but pilot error. He is the only witness for the prosecution the defense does not cross-examine. They will even cross-examine uh, Commander Lansdowne's widow when she comes up and says, oh, my, my husband told me about this, and, and here's an example of getting the wrong lawyer. Mitchell's lawyer, Congressman Reed, is not helpful, and he puts her into tears under cross-examination. That is not playing well with the press or anyone else in the room. Basically, he said, I think you're just saying what the Navy told you to say, Mrs. Lonsdale. Uh, that doesn't play well. The Navy trial has a significant problem for Mitchell in that these guys just don't stay dead when they're supposed to be dead. Well, as Lonsdale and the crew of the Shenandoah suffer the disaster and the fatalities, Commander Rogers shows up. He gets rescued. A Japanese trawler comes along and finds their seaplane uh, sea out there, and he comes and testifies. And the first question is, did non-flying officers of the Navy plan your mission or in any way conduct how you, you flew out there? And he goes, nope, absolutely not. We did it ourselves. He says, well, what would account for this disaster of you disappearing? He says, well, we misnavigated and we ran out of fuel. And we got lucky that someone picked us up. 
that's a very telling that Mitchell says, you know, they're killing them. And he says, nah, we just misnavigated. And it's a long ways, and we ran out of fuel. So that hurts when the guy that's supposed to be dead shows up not dead. And the trial continues like that almost throughout, statistically, by other evidence. What Mitchell tried to show was treasonable administration and negligence and incompetency falls apart. And it falls apart in a very unfortunate big way for him. Uh, Al Hurley, who was uh, one time head of uh, history at the Air Force Academy, uh, wrote the first, I think, most standard biography on Billy Mitchell, looked at the Tort Marshall transcript later when he writes a, a, an update to his book in 1975, says, I didn't really spend a lot of time with this, but the more I saw, it doesn't help Mitchell's case. The trial is not necessarily a kangaroo court. It wasn't predetermined, but it does bring a crescendo and an end to what would be the controversy of this time. And for many ways, the rest of Mitchell's life is almost very sad as he goes off. I have wrestled, and a few of us, with the notion of, okay, I understand frustration. And I can understand thinking that things should get better, and you've made this test, and there's a lot of stuff going on. What, though, is the hurry? Why can't you do I mean, there is no visible real threat in 1920 or 1924 that we're going to be attacked imminently. Yes, we're looking to the future. But why must you take the discourse to such an aggressive level? What is the urgency here that in many ways makes him lose what should be some political savvy? He's not dumb. His father was a senator. He understands how this works. Quite often he's talking to congressmen. And some of us, have, have, many historians have looked at this, and other writers looked at this, and some have been scandalous. One author seen one line in a medical report done, and Walter Reed on Billy Mitchell said, he was on a drunk for 20 years. Now, having been treated in medical military facilities, and knowing, I mean, one time I said, well, you happy with your dad? You know, occasionally we had disappointment. Sure, it says, has issues with his father. Uh, you know, maladjusted childhood or something. But to say that essentially based on one line in one medical examination where he says, are you drinking? And of course, it's prohibition. He says, yeah, I've been drinking. And take that essentially to indicate you're on a bender. And that's why your behavior is so erratic is another issue. I just don't buy it. I think it's scandalous to say. Some have talked about his ambition. Some have talked about the fact that he is the third generation. How do you make your mark? I will offer that, well, that is, I think, somewhat true, that Mitchell was ambitious. He was talented. He wanted to be the head of an independent Air Force. There's no doubt. His letters to his mother make that real clear. Dear Mom, I'm going to camp. Please send money, because I'm going to be the chief of the Air Force. Um, she had a lot of money, and she sometimes ran. But this is his brother, John Lendrum Mitchell. John goes to France in 1918, becomes an aviator, and dies there under Billy Mitchell's command. Billy Mitchell has to write the letter home to his mother about the death of her youngest child. Whether or not you've been on the receiving end of that or the one helping draft and write these letters, one can only imagine how that must have felt. And there is a continuous theme in Mitchell's writing about aviation and preparedness and betrayal that is consistent, that we lost people because we were not ready to do this business in the air. How long can you expect first-rate airmen to fly in third-rate equipment? How long will you rush young men through training to the fight? In his own little bit of writing about his brother at this time, he says, well, he flew in a weak aircraft. 
Now that was code for used French aircraft that the French Air Force would not use themselves. That he essentially crashes in that. Although he believes that it's actually his brother's rush through pilot training. That in fact it happens on a landing and the weather is marginal. But in any case, his brother dies under his command. And he thinks he dies because we didn't have what we needed for airmen. And I would suggest to you that that has an awful lot to do with this urgency that Billy Mitchell feels. And you can look at that in a lot of different ways. But when you read the longer statements about, we owe this to our comrades we left behind in France, who are dead because of essentially being betrayed without the equipment they need, uh, a constant theme we can find in almost any war, of course, I think that plays a part. And with that, I'll leave you with this sort of wonderful picture of Billy Mitchell. Got that high collar. And I thank you for your attention and um, for coming out tonight.